Amen. Yes, as Beth said, we are starting a brand new sermon series today called One Another. And so we're going to be looking at some of the uh, bigger themes that scripture teaches us on how to love and care for one another and to be a family. And so today we're looking at accept one another. And so when we're talking about accepting, uh, we're talking about acceptance, we're talking about receiving each other, about about welcoming one another, that we show kindness and compassion and warmth. It's it's kind of the, the real definition of hospitality and the heart of hospitality. You know, hospitality isn't just, oh, here's a delicious fancy meal or here's a nice coffee. It's you are welcome here. You are welcome in my, my space. You're welcome in my heart and my home. That's what acceptance is. And Romans 15, 7 tells us to accept one another the way Christ Jesus accepts us. So that's our goal. Jesus is our model of acceptance. And how does he accept us? Well, Jesus never says, I'll accept you when you do this, this, or this. He never says, I'll accept you when you look this way, or you sound like that, or if you can you know, recite all these memorized scriptures. He doesn't even say, I'll accept you when you're kind. We're actually told in the Bible that, that he accepts us when we're still sinners, that when we are enemies of God, he offers love and acceptance and grace. That's our example and model of accepting one another. And I can think of no better day than today to start this sermon series because today is Pentecost. It's the day we celebrate the birth of the church. And so at Pentecost, um, Jesus had died and he'd been raised and then he ascended into heaven but not before he said, wait. He told his followers, wait, because Holy Spirit's gonna come. Wait, because the one who empowers you to do even greater things than I have done is coming. And so 120 of his believers gather together in the upper room and they're praying and they're seeking God with one heart and one accord. And Holy Spirit comes. He comes like the fire of God. He comes and he pours himself out on all flesh. Not just some, but Acts 2 tells us this. He pours himself out on all flesh. And all means all. So it's every nationality, every race, every ethnicity. All of a sudden, everyone is given the very presence and power of the Lord equally. He says, it doesn't matter if you're male or female because my Holy Spirit is upon you in equal measure. So whatever cultural qualifications that you might have thought existed between men and women, no, you have Holy Spirit equally. At Pentecost, the the issues of ageism and classism are, are demolished because he says, it doesn't matter if you're old or you're young, you get Holy Spirit equally. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest of the poor, the poshest of the posh. I'm here for everyone. At Pentecost, Holy Spirit is poured out in equal measure on every believer. 
And so if, if you're a believer, if you have Holy Spirit living and dwelling and beating inside of you, then you are a part of this thing we call church. You are actually unified as one church, unified as one body of Christ. It's already happened. It happened at Pentecost. We are unified in the spirit because of what Holy Spirit did at Pentecost, because of the the divisions and the barriers that he smashed there. It's been done. We're one. The hard part is that now we have to walk that out. And being unified is often easier said than done because it involves people and it involves relationships and people are messy and people are different. So we have different experiences and backgrounds and expectations and understandings. And so disagreement and conflict are inevitable. They're, they're a part of humanity. But we can still choose to accept and choose to be unified. And we can sometimes idealize or or romanticize that that Pentecost church, that early church. And we can look at it and think, oh wow, like they had no lack because they were so generous for one another. Or, you know, they met daily together for prayer and the eating of bread. And wow, thousands were being added to their number daily. They were in a revival. And Yeah, wow, that's amazing. But if we just idealize that and and romanticize it, we miss out on the cost they paid for that unity. We miss out on the choices they made for that unity. Because things were not all sunshine and rainbows and peaches just because they were now unified in the spirit. They still had conflict they needed to walk out. We know because the Bible tells us stories like this, that actually the 120 who were in that room, they had competition between them. They were jealous of each other. They were disappointed in one another. We know that Paul had a massive falling out with his missionary partner, Barnabas. That Peter and Paul, kind of the two head honchos of the early church, they very publicly and very verbally disagreed with each other. They wrote about it in the Bible. The, the New Testament is filled with this phrase, one another. The phrase that we're um, kind of basing the whole sermon series off of. One another appears 100 times in the New Testament. 59 of those are very specific commands teaching us how to relate to one another or how not to relate to one another. Do you know why we have so many passages in the New Testament teaching us how to take care of each other? how to love one another, because the early church needed to know it. They needed to learn it. They needed to be reminded of this, the same way we need to be reminded of it, the same way we need to be taught how to care for one another, how to accept one another the way Christ Jesus accepts us. And one of the the biggest things that comes against this, the thing I see all over the world and all over the church that comes against and challenges this spirit of acceptance, this spirit of unity, this call to acceptance and unity is offense. 
Offense is this, this thing in us that, that, oh, we've been wronged. We've been slighted somehow. Oh, they, they did this to me. And it, it rises up in us. And, you know, we, we can be honest with each other here. People love to get on their high horse and act offended. We love it. Have you ever been, ever been on the internet? It's, it's like everywhere. Everyone's offended about everything. I actually had to really check my heart on this personally last week because I was listening to a podcast and they were saying mean things about my favorite book. And I got so annoyed. <laughs> like I was, it was like a personal attack on me, this man who I've never met and what he was saying about it. And I really had to look at myself and be like, what is going on here that I feel so offended by this? Or this one's gonna make it really real for, y'all, for some of y'all. Okay, you know when you're driving and, uh, and you let someone pass or you let them turn in front of you and they don't give you the wave? The audacity of that person, right? Like how dare they? You did this nice thing for them and they didn't give you the little wave? Oh my gosh. And you are annoyed and you are offended by it. And you just oh, can't believe them. Gosh. Oh. But what's happening in these moments, these, these moments where offense is rising up in us, whether it's a silly little example like those or whether you feel genuinely offended and wronged in, in a, a significant way, What's happening is that the Lord is revealing your heart to you. He's he's showing you what's going on in there. He's revealing our idols and what we feel entitled to. He's showing us our fears and our insecurities. And if we don't let him deal with that, if we don't process that offense with him, if we don't let him dig out that offense in us, we are going to act in direct opposition to the gospel. Because choosing offense, living this offended thing, we actually act in direct opposition to everything the gospel is and everything the kingdom of God holds. Because the gospel is a gospel of connection. It's a gospel of forgiveness, of reconciliation, of love, of grace, of patience, of acceptance, of of connection and community. That's what the gospel is. And so if we aren't choosing acceptance, if instead we're choosing to camp out in our offense, we'll never get the fullness of the gospel. We'll never see the fullness of the kingdom of God come. Because make no mistake about it, church, offense is a choice. I can't choose everyone else's ugly. I can't choose what they do or what they say or what they don't do or say to me. But I can choose my response. I can't control all of their stuff, but I can control me. You know, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. We don't like to talk about that one, but it is. And so if I'm leaning more into Holy Spirit, if I'm leaning into this spirit of unity, this, this presence of God that, that wanted the whole world, the whole, every believer to be unified, the same Spirit who came at Pentecost, if I'm leaning into Him, 
the fruit is going to be self-control. It's going to be me learning how to choose acceptance and grace, even in the face of offense. I actually have um, a little mantra for myself when I find uh, this particularly challenging. And this is my gift to you, so feel free to use it. But I will say to myself out loud, offense is a choice, and I make good choices, therefore I will not be offended. Offense is a choice, and I make good choices, therefore I will not be offended. Whew, they are really testing me, Jesus, okay. But offense is a choice, and I make good choices, therefore I will not be offended. And I actually repeat this mantra over and over and over again until I am ready to let the Lord deal with the offense. Until I'm ready to choose acceptance, not to camp out in offense. And there's, I don't think there's a greater story. It's my favorite story, an example of this in the Bible, than, you know, choosing grace and acceptance in the face of offense than the prodigal son. So it's in Luke 15. We're going to read it. Um, But basically, there's a, a wealthy father. And he has two sons, and the younger son goes to him and says, give me my inheritance, which culturally was the equivalent of him saying, you're dead to me, dad. And the father, which this must have been such a painful thing for him, he gives him the inheritance. And so the younger son, he goes out with it, and he absolutely squanders it, uh, lives a life of sin, a life of prostitutes and drink and just makes an absolute mess. And then he comes to himself and he says, what am I doing? I need to go home and beg my father for forgiveness. Even his servants are better off than I am right now. And so we read in Luke 15 verse 20, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So the father, having been beyond offended, sees his son and runs to accept him, runs to offer grace and compassion and love and kindness and to welcome him back home into this community. And I always read that story as the father does this and then offers the robe and the ring and the sandals and all the stuff. But that's not actually what the Bible just said. It says the father tells his servants to bring the robe and the ring and the sandals. See, the father didn't have a problem with accepting his son. He was there. He was willing to accept him despite the offense. But then he turns and he teaches his community how to respond to the offender. He teaches his community how to accept and love this man. Because there, there actually was this ceremony they did um, in situations like this. It's, it's called, I'm gonna, I might say it wrong, I'm sorry, a kazaza. It's a Hebrew word. 
And um, and it was a ceremony where if the son ever came back in this kind of situation, the community, the villagers would gather and they would say to him, you are cut off from this family. You are formally and officially shunned. You are rejected. You are not a part of this anymore. And the father knows this. And so he runs to his son to outrun his community, to outrun his villagers, because he believes in acceptance. He doesn't care about the offense. He wants his son back. He wants the acceptance and the love and the grace that he can be welcomed back home. And so he runs to him because this is what grace does. Grace runs to the offender. It embraces the offender. And then it teaches the community how to do the same. How to process the offense and accept him back home into the family. And we know the story as the prodigal son, but actually more likely when it was first told, this story would have been known as the running father. Because the emphasis of the story is on the father's grace, not the son's sin. The emphasis of the story is is the father's acceptance of him, not his mistakes. Now, this doesn't mean that we overlook sin, that we cover it up. Jesus never covers up our sin, but he he also doesn't hide it or, or run from it. He addresses it. And so you'll notice... The father doesn't like build a brothel in the backyard. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, make it so that the, the son can stay comfortable in his lifestyle of sin. But he says, that's not who you are. Who you are is my son. So you are worthy of my robe of protection, of my ring of authority. You are worthy of sandals on your feet because at this point, the son had sold himself into slavery and slaves didn't wear shoes. So the son, the father is, is giving him his shoes back. He's saying, you're not a slave anymore. You're my son. He is fully accepting him back, fully forgiving him, fully offering grace and love despite the offense. And that's what Jesus does. He addresses our sin by telling us exactly who we are, that we are children of God, that he is beautiful, good things for us, that we are called to a life of holiness and righteousness. And that's what we're called to be for one another, the kind of acceptance we're called to offer one another. And this is going to take some honest communication because conflict is real and people are messy. It takes courage. It takes courage to be vulnerable with people and say, this is my heart. This, these are my needs. And I don't feel like they've been accepted. I don't feel like they've been taken care of. It takes humility to hear someone else say that. To hear someone else say, this is my heart and my needs. And I don't feel like they've been taken care of. but it's what we need to do to have the hard conversations, to accept one another as as the truth of what God says about them, not just the actions they may have done. And I have, I I can't think of a better tool than, than this one that I learned. It's called the I statement. 
And it's really kind of revolutionized my relationships. And it kind of, it, it embodies the, um, the grace, the humility, the courage, the love, the honesty that Jesus teaches in his communication. And, and so this is how it goes. Often we are, when we get offended, we say things like, you did this. You made me feel this. I can't believe you, blah, blah, blah. The I statement instead addresses a feeling and issue by saying, I feel blank when blank happens. So instead of, um, you always leave the house without saying goodbye to me, and I, and I hate that, and you just make me so angry about it, and like you clearly don't love me, and blah, all the stuff. Instead, I would say, I feel sad and rejected when you leave the house without saying goodbye. I really need to feel loved and accepted. So do you think you could make sure you say goodbye to me next time? It's the same situation. I'm communicating the same information, but the latter is filled with acceptance. It's filled with love. It's, it's filled with believing the best about the other person because that's really key. We need to believe the best about each other. It's actually what love really is. You know, 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, it was written for the church. It was written for the church to learn how to love one another. And it ends with love bears all things. It hopes all things. Love endures all things. It's teaching us to believe the best in one another and fight for the best in one another. And I look around the last year and I think back to so many conversations and, and even recognizing in myself the way I did things and I just don't see this. We have not been believing the best about each other. We've been assuming the worst in one another. Every time someone um, doesn't message you, you think, oh, this person hates me, what a jerk, or oh, they, they, did, they did this, and gosh, if they had really known me, they would have da da da, or, or I can't believe they said that, why would they said that, gosh, you know, all, we make up these whole stories rather than believe the best in them and go to them as a brother or sister in Christ. We have to stop assuming the worst in one another, guys. We have to stop it. We have to start giving acceptance and grace freely because otherwise we will never experience the fullness of the kingdom of God. We will never experience the fullness of who the Lord is. Because there's actually a third character in this story. You've got the prodigal son, you've got the running father, but then you also have the older brother. And when this, this party was going on, the older brother comes in and he sees this and he refuses to go into the party. He is so offended by what his father has done for his brother. He's so angry about it that he refuses to go in and experience the party. And his father comes out to him and, and explains it to him. And his father says this in uh, verse 31. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. See, the older brother always had access to the father. He always had access to, to everything in his kingdom, every resource in his kingdom, but he completely missed out because he was so consumed with himself and his opinion of things, he refused to go in and accept the, the brother, accept this family, accept the celebration of it because he couldn't get over his offense. 
He couldn't offer the offender grace and acceptance the way his father could. And I just wonder how many of us are the older brother? How many of us are missing out on who the Lord is and what his kingdom is like because we can't get over our offense? Because we can't accept one another when one another has hurt us in the past. I don't want us to miss out, guys. Jesus. And I think there's a, a place this morning where we can let the Lord dig out that offense. Jesus, so that we can catch the heart of the running father. Jesus.